I next met with Dr. Denise Yarley, who presented a 62-year-old woman from her practice. She actually presented to an outside oncologist who actually initiated her treatment. She presented with an abnormal mammogram and underwent a biopsy evaluation revealing a HER2-positive cancer. There was a second focus and evidence of some enlarged lymph nodes, and she was started on the current regimen for neoadjuvant HER2-positive with docetaxel, pertuzumab, and trastuzumab, and she'd had two cycles and then actually came came to me at that point trying to figure out what to do. She was tolerating her treatment poorly. She understood the importance of it. She felt that she, you know, was having difficulties getting excited for another cycle of chemo. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through the question of whether to use neoadjuvant therapy or, say, adjuvant therapy in general in breast cancer and then specifically in HER2-positive breast cancer? Well, in general, the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I think, has really evolved over the last two decades. Initially, I think it was trying to address locally advanced lesions that really weren't ideal lesions to proceed with surgery to make these breast lesions more amenable to a surgical approach that could have been attached to chest wall or skin involvement or bulky axillary nodes. I think more recently, we incorporate a bit more decision-making in trying to give patients perhaps a consideration of a breast conservation where their lesion may be best suited for a mastectomy. So that's incorporated into a decision. And I think now with the evolution of some additional treatments and then recognizing the clinical aggressiveness of disease, particularly in the triple negatives and the HER2 positives, I think we're actually lowering our threshold to approach these patients with neoadjuvant therapy to get a jump start on micrometastatic systemic disease, as well as to make them more ideal candidates for surgery and reducing the potential of local regional disease. So for a HER2 positive patient like this lady with the current guidelines now of a two centimeter or greater than two centimeter HER2 lesion, this really gives a patient a chance at pertuzumab. So I think, you know, for many reasons in the HER2 setting, I actually look to be sure I can get a patient eligible for pertuzumab who, if they went on to surgery and were an operable candidate, wouldn't have that opportunity. And we know with the addition of pertuzumab to tristuzumab and a taxane-based regimen or an anthracycline followed by a taxane, tristuzumab, pertuzumab, regimen, we really are increasing the likelihood the patient has no disease at the time of surgery. I want to maybe go back through that because that's been one of the biggest changes in terms of the issue of neoadjuvant. First of all, it's the first time I think a therapy's ever even been approved in the neoadjuvant setting. I guess that was in the fall 2013 when pertuzumab, and now pretty much, at least there's FDA indications, if you're going to get it, it's got to be before surgery. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the issue is it's only other approval is in the first line metastatic setting. And so given that exciting data from the Cleopatra trial in the first line metastatic setting, and then seeing it translate into really a doubling of the pathologic complete response rate when given at least 12 weeks before patients go on to surgery, I think we really look to try to make our patients eligible to get an opportunity of dual HER2 targeted therapy. Can you explain a little bit more about what pertuzumab is and how it's different than trastuzumab and a little bit more about what's been seen when it's been given both in the neoadjuvant therapy as this patient got it as well as the metastatic setting? 
Sure. Pertuzumab is another monoclonal antibody, and it's very interesting. It does work on the HER2 receptor, which we're all experienced with regards to trastuzumab's effect. It's interesting that trastuzumab binds at a separate site, actually subdomain 4 of the HER2 molecule, and pertuzumab actually binds to subdomain 2, and that's to say that they don't compete against each other. They both bind the HER2 receptor, and the effect of pertuzumab actually is to block that dimerization. So for HER2 to signal effectively, it binds with another HER2 receptor, more commonly HER3 or HER2. So pertuzumab really impairs that and impairs that signaling. And by impairing that, it actually also increases the synergism or the activity of blocking HER2, both in the metastatic setting as well as in the neoadjuvant. In the metastatic setting, when it was compared to docetaxel, trastuzumab, or the two HER2-targeted therapies of pertuzumab, trastuzumab with docetaxel, we saw a powerful impact of increasing the disease control rate for these patients for you know a six-month advantage for just adding a non-chemotherapy, a biologic agent, or another monoclonal antibody with very minimal side effects. When this was taken in the neoadjuvant setting, we saw, again, that same type of benefit in that we saw more tumor cell kill. We saw nearly a doubling of the patients who presented to surgery with absolutely no evidence of any residual cancer after being exposed to two HER2 therapies in combination with chemo. What about side effects with pertuzumab? You know, I do think some patients feel a little bit more fatigued, particularly once we have embarked on pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and we stop the chemotherapy component. There seems to be a little bit more evidence of that. I think the big signal is the GI or the diarrhea that is accompanied by pertuzumab, and that's a clear change from when we just had the single HER2-targeted agent with trastuzumab. And it's hard up front, certainly with the Cleopatra trial that we participated in docetaxel. That's on the list of side effects, and so that's not so unexpected. I think when the chemotherapy component or backbone gets discontinued and you continue to see that, you know, clearly resonates of the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab. And, you know, I think all of our patients like the accolades that dual HER2-targeted therapy gives them in terms of the advantage of disease control. But for most patients, it requires another medication. It's not just something that they can manage or it's just on the day of treatment. It is something that requires medications, and we kind of go through some of the diet things, whether we use which anticholinergic or whichever the counter product to manage the diarrhea, because that does impact on their quality of life. So if you think about it, you know, you've talked about this big advantage that was surprised to a lot of people that was seen in this study when you added in this second antibody, both in the pre-op setting and the metastatic setting. And kind of in between that is something that right now, I guess we don't really know about, which is the adjuvant setting. Are there situations where you use pertuzumab as adjuvant therapy nowadays? 
Well, it's interesting. You know, it doesn't have that label yet given by the FDA. I think when we look at the NCCN guidelines, there's a suggestion that that should be considered or contemplated. And I think it's really been a case-by-case scenario in my practice of really getting an insural approval. I think the other issue is we are actively participating in some of the other ongoing trials looking at pertuzumab. And so we have a low-risk HER2-positive trial that's actually looking at another HER2-targeted agent, TDM1. And then the other trial we're participating in is the Christine trial and then the Caitlin, which is both an adjuvant and a neoadjuvant trial, looking at TDM1 and adding pertuzumab to that backbone or the trastuzumab-pertuzumab backbone. So we'll talk about TDM1 in a second. But this lady got, which we know from surveying oncologists nowadays, is a standard neoadjuvant therapy that's given in HER2 positive, whether it's ER positive like this letter, ER negative, which is a taxane, carboplatin often is at, as was initially done with this lady, and then the two antibodies. How did she actually do? I know she came to you after getting a couple cycles of that therapy because she wasn't doing so well. She presented, you know, with just a host of what we would see with docetaxel side effects. She'd actually been admitted to the hospital. She'd had a lot of GI symptoms with some nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. She had neutropenia. And then she actually did have already some neuropathy, which is not as characteristic of this small of an exposure to docetaxel. But she was clearly, I think, very sensitive to that compound. And so I think her question really was, you know, I don't think I can do any more chemotherapy. And am I candidate now to go to surgery? And it, you know, that was sort of the evolution of that visit. And we talked about maybe switching the taxane backbone, trying to continue with the carboplatinum, the pertuzumab and trastuzumab. And I selected for her, based on the neuropathy, the consideration of NAB-paclitaxel. Based on its lesser myelosuppression, I felt that that may help make it a little bit more tolerable. I clearly wanted her to get the advantages of the dual HER2-targeted therapy. And with just two or three cycles, she clearly had had benefit, but not at least on physical exam, complete resolution. And so we embarked on fractionating the taxane using a different taxane backbone with nabpaclitaxel on a weekly schedule. And she did well with that, and her neuropathy did not progress. And what's her current situation? So we did about two extra cycles of that. And then I think she, you know, cumulatively, she was experiencing fatigue and symptoms, you know, from just their overall exposure to chemotherapy. And so at that point, we discussed the powerful synergism that the dual HER2 targeted therapies allow. And I think, you know, in many circumstances, those circumstances where patients have very sensitive disease, we went ahead and imaged her, her MRI of her breast revealed no evidence of any residual enhancement. She had great regression with normalization of her axillary lymph nodes. And we elected at that time to go ahead on to surgery. And the surgery very nicely in her confirmed she had absolutely no residual disease in either the breast or the lymph node. And at that point, what was the plan and where is she right now? 
So at that point, you know, looking again at the FDA guidelines, she continued with trastuzumab. Pertuzumab does not have the indication of post-operative from a neoadjuvant setting. And then because her disease was HER2 positive, we placed her on the aromatase inhibitor letrozole, and she continued with that and then got the appropriate local regional chest wall radiation really based on the presence of that initial presentation with the enlarged axillary lymph nodes. And how far out is she from her surgery? She's now about four months out. How's she doing on the letrozole? Any arthralgias? You know, she's actually tolerating the letrozole much better than I was anticipating, given the difficulty she had with the chemotherapy up front. She is experiencing, as would be expected, some arthralgias or more in the grade one arena. They haven't really been that limiting for her currently. And then she tolerated her chest wall radiation exceptionally well with just a really some increase in fatigue. Now, if she had had disease at surgery, because not every patient, maybe I guess half of patients with HER2 positive disease will have this scenario where they go to surgery and there's no tumor. What do you do if the patient does have residual tumor? Same thing? That's a great question. And, you know, the standard has been just to continue with these patients. I think from many of our trials now, we're really learning to look at the HER2 patients with a little bit more attention to the hormone receptor positivity or negativity. And we clearly know the HER2 positive in the metastatic setting that are also hormone receptor positive seem not to have quite as favorable as an outcome. And so that question has increasingly been raised. Our own institution has a trial for patients with residual disease, which looks at a different chemotherapy backbone with arubilin and trastuzumab, and then they go on to the endocrine therapy. I think there is a trial that's ongoing looking at now incorporating different agents like TDM in that setting or adding some other biologic agents on the premise that there is some resistance in the HER2 signaling pathway or whether it's a connected cross-signaling between a hormone receptor and HER2 receptor that's meeting resistance. So we're looking at some of the PI3 kinase and other biologic agents to try to see if we can improve outcomes. So you kind of went through the medical oncologic aspects of this story that happens almost every day in oncology practice. Now I'd like to kind of go back and put some more colors in in terms of this woman in particular. And I'm curious sort of what was her lifestyle like? She sounds like she had kind of a difficult time, particularly with the chemotherapy. Did she have any other health problems? And what was she doing at the time this happened? Actually, she was enjoying retirement. She had been in sales, and I think this really caught her by surprise. She had been a patient that had been getting her annual mammography. And so I think she was all on board until her first exposure to the chemotherapy. Obviously, the hardships with alopecia and some of the GI symptomatology. But I think when she came to me, I think she was at a point of questioning whether she could go on with any additional therapy, recognizing the aggressive nature of her two positive disease. And I think, you know, after some dialogue of trying to say, you know, some of the differences between the different chemotherapies, you know, she was willing to undergo that change. And I think that change, you know, she definitely noticed she was able to tolerate it. But I think she still got a pretty good hit on her stamina and reserve from the chemotherapy. Who typically came to clinic with her, if anybody did come, and what was sort of her circle of people around her? 
So her husband was very devoted to her and was there at every visit. And they traveled, you know, for the weekly nabpaclitaxel and carboplatinum, which was, you know, I think a feed in in itself when you think about a patient who's tolerating therapy so poorly, he's been admitted early on with cycle one of therapy that they're, you know, willing to get in a car and drive a couple of hours to get a different chemotherapy agent. But, you know, we did talk about, you know, just how profound the HER2 targeted agents were in their role in the neoadjuvant. And I think that provided her with a little bit more motivation. And I think she clearly experienced a difference with the nabpaclitaxel. But it was her husband that was at her side. But she definitely improved. She was able to go back into what was important to her in the community. She was able to attend church. Her degree of neutropenia, you know, permitted her now to be able to do that. She was never admitted again, which was a big issue for her and her lifestyle, was able to perform in some of the clubs that she was now in in her local community. Did she have children? She had two grown children. Were they involved in her care? They actually, only by phone, they had both moved out of state. And so they came in for her surgery, but were not there for her chemotherapy. What was her attitude and her husband's towards information? Were they out getting information on the web and asking you a lot of questions or pretty much just saying, what do we do? You know, they were, and I think in her community, when she was really questioning whether she could undergo another cycle of chemotherapy, I think they did visit with the internet. They visited with other friends and sort of knew of our center as a good potential to get another opinion. I think, you know, they were both embracing the importance of their upfront neoadjuvant therapy, but they were also, I think, really wanting somebody to listen to the difficulties and the challenges and to the point where the patient was questioning whether she, despite the knowledge, was going to be able to undergo another round of therapy. And so, you know, we were able to talk about different taxanes and different side effects and different schedules. You know, docetaxel was given on a Q3 week. Nabpaclitaxel was weekly, but, you know, the benefit for that schedule and that commute was that she was able to get back into her lifestyle in the community, and that was very important for her. So now someone else, another oncologist, gave her those first two cycles. Was she then coming to you for a second opinion, or did that oncologist send you for a second opinion? What was going on? She actually sought me for a second opinion because I think she felt that with her presentation in terms of intolerance, those admissions to the hospital, there was no discussion of any change in the program to kind of accommodate her poor tolerability. And I think she frankly felt she could not undergo another docetaxel carboplatinum round of therapy and was kind of looking to say, you know, should I go to surgery now? Or are there any other options? And I think it was quite profound that she agreed, you know, with her experience to actually try a different chemotherapy backbone. Did you have the sense that kind of she had lost trust in the initial oncologist? I think she really felt she wasn't being heard. She clearly was not tolerating it well. And I think you know, looking through her records, her admissions with both of those cycles. And I think she felt that no one was making any adjustments or any options of how she could continue to finish this. And I think she was questioning herself that she could not move forward with that same treatment plan. So now you've had the opportunity to take care of her for a while. And do you find her an easy, difficult, or average patient to deal with? 
I found her to be quite easy to deal with. I think it was really being able to, you know, have an open discussion that there are alternatives and that, you know, as I approach my patients, I try to always make sure when we lay out a plan to let them know that this is the plan as we start before we've actually ever administered any therapy. And then from that point on, it's in a reevaluation. So despite, you know, I would have done the same as this physician, docetaxel, consideration of carboplatin, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, but I clearly try to emphasize to the patients when they come back from that first treatment or during the course of that first treatment, we value the response, the tolerability to make a decision. Do we move forward or do we need to reevaluate? I think the importance is of getting some amount of a taxane and two HER2 targeted therapies in the patient, but there are many ways to accomplish that. And so I really try to say this is the plan, but this is not the cookbook. I'm not going to not see you now until the sixth cycle. We're going to see you every visit and make adjustments. We may change course entirely as needed. We may finish early. We may go to surgery early. And I try to lay that groundwork to really open the dialogue with patients because I want to know what's happening outside of our office to make those adjustments. So you mentioned TDM1 and your group was really the very first people to actually use this drug in clinical trials many years ago. Today, what do you say to your patients who are starting this drug in terms of what to expect? You know, I talk to the patients, and it's nice because most of the patients have had prior exposure to a chemotherapeutic and a HER2 agent like trastuzumab. And so it's kind of easy to tell them it's sort of a one-two hit or punch where the chemotherapy is bound to trastuzumab, so making it a one infusion or one injection of a compounded agent that is bound, it does very much like trastuzumab, circulates, finds the HER2-targeted tumor cells, and then is internalized, sort of like you know, the HER2 molecule is a flagpole and the TDM is a flag and then it's taken or as a flag is lowered, taken down into the cell and the cells have a enzyme that just cleaves the chemotherapy component from the trastuzumab component, releasing the chemotherapy within the tumor cell. And that's why we really don't see the same experience and exposure of chemotherapeutic side effects as in this patient's case in her adjuvant setting, because the chemo is delivered right within the tumor cell. So we see very minimal of the classic chemotherapy side effects. What do you tell your patients in terms of side effects? So TDM1, while, you know, it has such a wonderful and favorable side effect in terms of myelosuppression, neutropenia, we do see thrombocytopenia, and that can be up to about 15% grade 3, 4. It's generally mild. It's also generally seen very early on, although I have a group of patients, too, that we start seeing it after prolonged exposure. It's typically not encumbered by risks of bleeding as you see with some of the cytotoxics where they take a really straight, deep dive during their nadir with thrombocytopenia. It's generally
generally mild and you can treat through it. You can hold and it improves. I think the other component is we do see some elevated liver function tests or transaminases, the AST and ALT, and that's about half the rate of the thrombocytopenia, about grade three. We see is 8%. Again, you know, it's managed with dose reductions and some dose holds typically doesn't become something that the patients are even aware of or symptomatic from, but we do monitor that because it can continue. And there have been rare cases of nodular regenerative hyperplasia associated with these elevated transaminitis. It's very, very infrequent, but, you know, reason to monitor these patients while they're on treatment. So from a quality of life perspective, I mean, this TDM1 does include a tiny amount of this targeted chemotherapy, but do you see any kind of quality of life chemotherapy issues, you know, alopecia, nausea, et cetera, fatigue? No, very, very little. I mean, I think that's, you know, the alopecia we have not seen and patients, you know, grow their hair back while on the TDM1. I have not really had nausea. I have had a few patients when they first get started on it that have symptoms of where their disease or their tumor burden is. So I've had a patient that's had right upper quadrant discomfort if they've had a lot of liver disease with their first one or two treatments, one that's had a low-grade fever, but large Largely, these patients function with excellent quality of life, and most of the side effects, the thrombocytopenia and the elevated transaminases are all really paper toxicity that we measure when we do blood counts on these patients. The patients are not aware of it. They're not bruising. They're not bleeding. They're not having petechiae. Obviously, when we see a signal of thrombocytopenia, we monitor for patients who are on anticoagulants or may be at risk for bleeding from other confounding meds. So I also interviewed Emily Olson for this program, and she presented a patient with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer when Everolimus, and I know you were very involved with research on this agent also. And what is your take on this treatment, particularly related to patient education? You've got this 67-year-old lady who's been on Everolimus for a couple of years now successfully, but she also had some minimal pneumonitis and, like a lot of patients, some mucositis with treatment. How did you counsel her at the beginning when she started treatment? We had a long education session about the side effects. She is a travel consultant, travels, and writes books about travels. And so for many reasons, I think that was a good fit, but also, you know, to give her the education on what symptoms to be aware of. Because I do think with Everolimus, these symptoms can be quite insidious and not something that a patient may give a lot of accolades as to a drug effect. And so for her, you know, we talked about the issues of stomatitis and then pneumonitis, and she actually experienced both of that. The stomatitis as is common for Everolimus was something that was early in the first month or two, easily managed with some mouth care products. And we held the dose and then just reinitiated at the same dose. The pneumonitis was actually picked up by scans initially, so it was completely a radiographic. But from that, in trying to quiz her, it became evident, we continued her through that therapy, that she did develop a subsequent cough. So we did, in accordance with the management of the pneumonitis, we held her and then I gave her a little steroid pack. She went on a trip, came back, we reinitiated it, and she's been able to be on it for another year since then without a recurrence of the pneumonitis. 
How do you explain to patients and how do you explain to her sort of whatever Limus is and sort of the thinking behind why it's given? I kind of actually sit and try to talk about some of what makes tumors resistant. And we talk about some of these resistance pathways or sort of like, you know, the endocrine or the HER2 targeted agent may be a dam in the watershed and then you get a leak that passes around it. And that leak is what drives tumor growth and progression where Everolimus is another road stop on that leak. So it helps patch that ability for the tumors to escape benefit and can restore benefit from the original targeted agent, whether it's a HER2 agent or whether it's an endocrine agent. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of motivation to try to partner another oral therapy with the endocrine therapies to really increase the ability of the patients to stay on that endocrine therapy to get every bit of mileage out of it before their tumors ultimately develop another means of resistance that, you know, we're continually to be challenged with and trying to understand how we can offset that. And certainly for the hormone positive patients now, there's a wealth of agents that really mirror the understanding of the resistance signaling from the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway, which Everolimus is a portion of, but we have specific agents too, just our PI3 kinase agents, our AKT inhibitors are all trying to extend the benefit from endocrine signaling pathways in those agents because we know those tumors seem to be the most sensitive to that group of drugs. Can you talk a little bit more? This lady had two of the complications that can be seen with Everolimus, the mucositis, as you mentioned, that is pretty common, and then the pneumonitis, which is pretty uncommon. What actually happened to her? So when she presented, and she's quite well aware of the shallow base, non-contiguous lesions in her mouth, and so she was very quick to let us know. She's not one that wants to always come into the office for a visit, and so it's very worthwhile of spending the time to educate her. And we do this for all of our patients, you know, to make sure that we continue that open dialogue. We want them to convey what they're experiencing, whether it's something that we've educated them on or not, so we can be on the forefront of trying to manage this, whether it's a reduction or an interruption or addition of another medication. You know, I would say at this point when we initiated her and different from now, and I think there's a trial underway, you know, looking at the steroid-based mouthwash and whether that might have, you know, mitigated her development of the stomatitis or not. But certainly that's under evaluation and there have been reports or suggestions that that may help prevent the stomatitis from developing. And that usually is an early on event. And so with management, that doesn't continue to represent. I think it represented in her a year later and we held. But the pneumonitis, I think, is probably more challenging and not something we experience much with any of our chemotherapeutic agents for the management of advanced or even early stage breast cancer. That's just not been a common toxicity profile. And so that one, I think we really look at those fevers, we look at the scan results, we look at the these coughs, and try to make sure that the patient is aware of that potential. But typically, steroid packs have 
help them with a cold and even a dose reduction for patients have been allow them, for the patients that are continuing to benefit from Everlamis, to be able to continue on that and achieve that same benefit with some modification in the dosing. But, you know, I'd say for starting Everolimus in these patients, there's a lot of time spent on education. A lot of patients I bring in early on for short interval visits to just check on their ability to tolerate, to look in their mouth and be sure that they're not experiencing some of these side effects.